The following is the second half of the audiobook Noah's Ark. A'uzu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the ever merciful. Noah's Ark by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed alayhi salatu wasalam, the promised Messiah and Mahdi. This is an audiobook recorded for the Review of Religions. The Review of Religions magazine was established in 1902 by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the promised Messiah and Imam Mahdi, in order to prove the existence of God and the relevance of religion in the modern world and continues to engage audiences across the world to this day. You can find a range of audiobooks and other exciting resources on our website at www.reviewofreligions.org. He is constant in his sustenance and provides for them according to their needs. His constant providence, graciousness, mercy and punishment and reward are in operation perpetually at all times and in all the worlds. Let it be borne in mind that the phrase Maliki Yawmuddin, Master of the Day of Judgment in Surah Fatiha, does not simply mean that reward and punishment would be awarded only on the Day of Judgment. The Holy Quran has repeatedly and explicitly stated that the Day of Judgment will be the time of the grand recompense. However, one type of punishment and reward begins in this very world, which is indicated in the verse يَجْعَلْ لَكُمْ فُرْقَانًا That He will grant you a distinction. Surah Al-Anfal, chapter 8, verse 30. Let it also be known that the prayer of the Gospel seeks daily bread, as it is stated in the words, Give us this day our daily bread. How peculiar to think that such a one should be able to provide bread when his rule is still to be established on earth. For at present, all the fields and fruits grow independently of his command and rain falls without his influence. What power does he possess to bestow anyone bread? One should ask of him to provide bread only after his kingdom has been established on earth. For at present, he has no influence over anything of this world. It is only after he assumes full control over this dominion that he can grant bread to anyone. At present, even to implore him is inappropriate. Then, the subsequent statement, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who are indebted to us, is also incorrect in this respect. After all, what debt is owed to God when he has no dominion over the world yet? and the Christians have gained nothing from his hand. No debt needs to be cleared with such an empty-handed God, nor need he be feared, for his kingdom has yet to be established on earth, and the authority of his sovereignty is unable to inspire even the least bit of awe. What power has he to punish a sinner or destroy a people by the plague, as did he the transgressing people of the era of Moses? rain stones upon them as was done with the people of Lot, or eradicate the disobedient by an earthquake, lightning or some other chastisement, while God's kingdom has not even been established on earth. Thus, as the God of the Christians is as frail as his son, and as dispossessed as his son, it is futile to offer supplications to him, imploring, forgive us our debt. What debt did we owe him to begin with so that he should forgive us it? for his earthly kingdom is yet to be established. 
Since his kingdom has not even been established on earth, this would imply that all the growth in the world is independent of his command, and all things of earthly nature do not belong to him, rather they are self-existent because he has no dominion over the earth. And because he is not the king and sovereign of the world, and none of its comforts are by his royal dictates, he has no authority or right to punish anyone. It is therefore absurd to take such a feeble one to be God and still invest hope that he will intervene in the workings of the world for his kingdom is yet to be established on earth. In contrast, the prayer of Surah Fatiha teaches us that on earth God possesses at all times the same power that he possesses over other worlds. In the very outset, Surah Fatiha speaks of those perfect and mighty attributes of God which have not been so clearly stated by any other scripture in history. As Allah the Exalted states, He is Ar-Rahman, gracious, He is Ar-Rahim, merciful, and He is Maliki Yawmiddin, the master of the Day of Judgment. Thereafter, we are taught to beseech Him. In addition, the supplication in question does not merely ask for daily bread, like the prayer taught by the Messiah, Instead, this prayer appeals to all those faculties which human nature has been endowed with since eternity and for all that it has been made to thirst after. And that is, اِحْدِنَ الصِّرَاطُ الْمُسْتَقِيمَ صِرَاطُ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ That is, O Master of these perfect attributes, O the Munificent One who nourishes each and every particle, all of which benefit from your grace, mercy and power to reward and punish. Make us heir to the pious people of the past and bestow on us each and every blessing that you bestowed on them. And save us from disobedience lest we incur your wrath and protect us lest we are deprived of your help and are thereby led astray. Amen. Now, by this entire discourse, the difference between the prayer of the Gospel and the prayer of the Qur'an has become evident. The Gospel merely promises that the Kingdom of God will come, whereas the Qur'an says that the Kingdom of God is with you. Moreover, not only is it present, but everyone already practically reaps the advantages of its beneficence. Hence, the Gospel only makes a promise. The Qur'an, however, does not make a mere promise but rather speaks of an established kingdom and demonstrates its bounties. The superiority of the Qur'an is evident from the fact that it presents a God who is the saviour and comforter of righteous people in this very worldly life. There is not a soul which is devoid of his beneficence. In fact, the bounty of his providence, graciousness and mercy encompasses every soul according to its needs. Conversely, the gospel speaks of a God whose dominion is still to be established on earth and in fact only makes a promise thereof. Now contemplate which of the two does reason lead us to believe is more worthy of following. Hafiz Shirazi is true when he says, Why do you resent me, sir? for I am a follower of my Master. Although you made promises, it was He who fulfilled them. The Gospels praise the forbearing, mild, meek, and those who remain passive in the face of harassment. But the Qur'an does not advise that one should remain meek in every circumstance, nor to refrain from confronting evil. 
Rather, it teaches that forbearance, humility, meekness and passivity are all meritorious, but not when exercised inappropriately. All good deeds ought to be performed with an appreciation of appropriate time and circumstance. An act of piety exercised at an inappropriate time or situation is a sin. As you are aware, rain is an invaluable and essential bounty, but if it is unseasonal, the very same causes devastation. You know well that one cannot maintain their health by exclusively eating either cold foods or hot foods. You can only maintain your health by altering your diet according to various needs and requirements. Thus, sternness, clemency, forgiveness, retribution, blessing or curse, and all other forms of morality which possess benefit for you in various circumstances also require a similar change. Become a forbearing and kind person of the highest order, but not in unreasonable and inappropriate circumstances. Along with this, it should also be remembered that truly sublime virtues, those that are unadulterated by the poison of selfish desires, are bestowed from on high by the Holy Spirit. You cannot attain these lofty morals simply through your own endeavours until they are bestowed upon you from heaven. And anyone who is not blessed with virtue through heavenly grace, which comes from the Holy Spirit, is false in their claim to possess good morals. These people may be likened to such water, which at its depth is contaminated by substantial amounts of filth and excrement, which surfaces in the heat of selfish passions. Thus, always seek strength from God, that you may be cleansed of this filth and excrement and so that the Holy Spirit may inculcate within you true purity and beauty. Remember that true and pure morals are but one of the miracles of the righteous, in which they have no equal. Those who are not lost in God are not bestowed strength from on high. Therefore, it is impossible for them to inculcate pure morals. So establish a sincere relationship with your God. Discard all ridicule, mockery, rancor, foul language, greed, falsehood, unchastity, casting lustful glances, sinful thoughts, materialism, arrogance, pride, self-conceit, mischief and obduracy. Then will you be bestowed everything from heaven. Until you are strengthened by that heavenly power which raises you, and until the Holy Spirit which bestows life does not enter you, until then, you are immensely frail and plunged in darkness. In fact, you are dead and devoid of life. In such a state, neither can you contend any misfortune, nor can you escape pride and arrogance when in a position of prosperity and wealth, and you are in every way overcome by Satan and your own ego. Your only real effective remedy is that the Holy Spirit which specially descends from the hand of God, should turn your face towards virtue and righteousness. Become the children of heaven, not the children of earth. And become the heirs of light, not those who are infatuated by darkness, so that you might escape the paths of Satan. Satan is ever concerned with the night and not with the day, for he is an experienced thief and steps forth only 
in darkness. Surah Fatiha is not just a mere teaching, but also contains a grand prophecy. That is to say, God has described His four attributes, Rububiyat, Providence, Rahmaniyat, Graciousness, Rahimiyat, Mercy, and Malikiyat Yawmiddin, i.e. the power to reward and punish. And after elaborating upon His all-encompassing omnipotence, God then teaches the following prayer in the subsequent verses. Our Lord, make us heirs to the pious prophets and messengers of the past. Open for us their path and bestow on us the blessings that were bestowed on them. Our Lord, protect us from becoming like those people upon whom your punishment descended in this very life, i.e. like the Jewish people in the time of Jesus the Messiah who were destroyed by the plague. Our Lord, protect us from becoming like those people who were not guided by you and were thus led astray in the manner of the Christians. Hence, this prayer contains an underlying prophecy that there would be some from among the Muslims who will become heirs of the past prophets on account of their truth and sincerity and will be bestowed with the blessings of prophethood and messengership and also that others would become like the Jews and punishment would descend upon them in the present life while others still would cloak themselves in the garb of the Christians. The unchangeable custom discernible in God's word is that when a certain people are forbidden from committing a certain act as per the knowledge of God, some from among them will commit it whereas others will choose righteousness and virtue. Since the remotest ages, it has been the eternal practice of God that whenever He reveals a book in which He forbids a nation against an evil act or urges towards a good act, He knows for certain that some people will obey while others will not. And so, the chapter under discussion prophesies that someone from among this ummah will appear in the perfect manner of prophets so that the prophecy derived from the verse Surat al-Ladhina an'amta alayhim may be perfectly and comprehensively fulfilled. Then, a group from among this ummah are bound to appear who shall be like those Jews who were cursed by Jesus and then afflicted by the punishment of God so that the prophecy contained in the verse غَيْرِ الْمَغْضُوبِ alayhim may be manifested. Another group still from among them will become like the Christians who, on account of their drunkenness, moral permissiveness, sinfulness and immorality, were left deprived, so that the prophecy expounded in the verse may be fulfilled. It is part of the doctrine held by the Muslims that in the latter days many thousands of so-called Muslims will come to resemble the Jews. This has been prophesied in the Holy Qur'an at many an instance. Moreover, one can easily notice and observe that thousands of Muslims are either converting to Christianity or choosing to live entirely free and unrestrained lives like those of the Christians. In fact, many such people who are still referred to as Muslims prefer the Christian way of life. Despite their being referred to as Muslims, they hold a strong aversion towards prayer, fasting and the injunctions which relate to lawful and unlawful matters. It can be seen that both these classes of people who have become like the Jews and Christians are prevalent in this country. 
Thus, the two aforementioned prophecies of Surah Fatiha have been fulfilled before your very eyes. One can observe how the Muslims have come to resemble the Jews and have donned the garb of the Christians. Therefore, the third part of the prophecy is also worthy of being readily accepted. For just as the Muslims would imitate the Jews and Christians and partake of the unrighteousness found to exist within them, there was bound to be others from among the Muslims who would be entitled to achieve the rank and status of those holy people of the children of Israel who once lived. To entertain that God referred to the Muslims as Jews and Christians because they followed the evil ways of both, yet entirely deprived this ummah from attaining the rank of their past prophets and messengers is to think ill of God Almighty. In these circumstances, how is one to consider this ummah as the very best? Rather, it would be the worst ummah, for it would have adopted every evil but missed out on every virtue. Is it not necessary that someone from among this ummah should appear as a prophet or messenger and be the heir and reflection of all the prophets of the children of Israel? It is far from the mercy of God Almighty that he should raise in this ummah thousands of persons in this age who possess the characteristics of the Jews and allow thousands more to convert to Christianity and yet not raise a single person who would be the heir of the past prophets and partake of their blessings. It is necessary that the prophecy contained in the verses اِهْدِنَ السُّرَاطُ الْمُسْتَقِيمَ سُرَاطُ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ be fulfilled, just like the already fulfilled prophecy, which states that the Muslims would become like the Jews and Christians. This ummah has been given thousands of terrible names, and it is evident from the Holy Qur'an and the Hadith that they were also destined to become like the Jews. Thus, in such circumstances, in keeping with the grace of God, it was only essential that where the Muslims took on the evils of the past Christians, they should also have inherited that which is virtuous. It is for this reason that in the following verse of Surah Fatiha, إِهْدِنَا Suratul Mustaqim, God Almighty proclaimed the good news that some people from among this ummah would be bestowed the same blessings as the prophets of the past. They were not destined to solely adopt the bad habits of the Jews and Christians while completely foregoing their virtues. It is this very point which has also been indicated in Surah Tahrim that some people from among this ummah should resemble Mary the Truthful who lived a life of chastity. Then the soul of Jesus was breathed into her womb and he was born to her. This verse signifies that someone from among this ummah would first be conferred the station of Mary and then the soul of Jesus would be breathed into him. Then would Jesus emerge from Mary. That is to say, the attributes of the person who resembles Mary would be transformed into those of Jesus. In other words, the quality of being Mary's likeness would give birth to one who takes on the form of Jesus. In this way, such a person would be referred to as the son of Mary. Thus, in Barahina Ahmadiyya, I was first given the name Mary, as can be inferred from the revelation on page 241, that is, O Mary, wherefrom did you attain this blessing? 
A revelation on page 226 also makes reference to this. Huzza ilayka bijiz'in nakhla. That is, O Mary, shake the trunk of the palm tree. And then on page 496 of Barahine Ahmadiyya, the following revelation is present. Ya Maria muskun anta wa zawjuka al-janna nafakhtu fika min ladunni ruha sidq. That is, O Mary, enter heaven with your companions. I have breathed into you from myself the soul of truth. In this revelation, God has referred to me as the soul of truth. This is a reference to the verse, نَفَخْتُ فِيهِ مِنْ رُوحِنَا Thus, in this instance, the soul of Jesus is metaphorically referred to as having been breathed into the womb of Mary and named the soul of truth. Finally, on page 556 of Barahine Ahmadiyya, a revelation was received about the birth of that Jesus, who was once in the womb of Mary. It is as follows. Ya Isa inni mutawafika wa rafiuka ilayya wa ja'ilul ladhina attaba'uka fawqal ladhina kafaru ila yawmil qiyamah. That, O Jesus, I will cause thee to die and will exalt thee to myself and will place those who follow thee above those who disbelieve until the day of resurrection. Surah Al-Imran, chapter 3, verse 56. Here, I have been named Jesus, and the revelation discloses the fact that the Jesus who was breathed into Mary, referred to on page 496, has appeared. So in this respect, I have been named Jesus, son of Mary, because my status as Jesus emerged from my initial status as Mary through the breath of God. See pages 496 and 556 of Barahine Ahmadiyya. It is this very phenomenon of the birth of Jesus, son of Mary, in this Ummah, which has been vividly prophesied in Surah Tahrim, wherein it is explained that someone from among this Ummah will firstly be transformed into the likeness of Mary. Thereafter, the soul of Jesus will be breathed into this Mary. As such, for a period of time, this person will be nurtured in the womb of Mary before being born as the spiritual manifestation of Jesus. And in this way, such a person will come to be known as Jesus, son of Mary. This is the prophecy regarding the son of Mary who would be from among the Ummah of Muhammad wasallam, which was revealed almost 1300 years ago in Surah Tahrim of the Holy Quran. Then, in Barahine Ahmadiyya, God Almighty Himself has expounded on the verses of Surah At-Tahrim. The Holy Quran is with you. If one were to study the Holy Quran with Barahin Ahmadiyya and ponder over this matter with fairness, reason and piety, one would be able to see how this prophecy in Surah Tahrim, that a person from among this Ummah would also be named Mary and would then be transformed therefrom into Jesus, i.e. be born from Mary, was fulfilled in the revelations of Barahin Ahmadiyya. Is this within the power of man? Did I have any control over this affair? Was I present when the Holy Qur'an was being revealed so that I could request for a verse to be sent down which would make me son of Mary and thereby alleviate any future accusations relating to my being referred to as the son of Mary? 
Moreover, was it possible that twenty or twenty-two years ago, rather even before this, I could have crafted the plan to forge a revelation so that I may first be referred to as Mary and then gone on to concoct a revelation which suggested that like the Mary of the past, the soul of Jesus was also breathed into me. And then finally, on page 556 of Barahin Ahmadiyya, written that from Mary I had now emerged as Jesus. My dear ones, reflect and fear God. This is surely not the work of man. Wisdoms as profound and subtle as these transcend the understanding and judgment of man. If, long ago during the publication of Barahin Ahmadiyya, I had plotted such a thing, why then would I have written that the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, will descend to return from heaven in the same book? For God knew that if I had knowledge of this point, my present argument would fall weakly. So although God referred to me as Mary in the third part of Barahin Ahmadiyya, and as is evident from the treatise itself, for two years I was nurtured in the likeness of Mary and continued to develop in the cloak of secrecy. Then after two years had passed, as it is recorded in the fourth part of Barahin Ahmadiyya on page 496, like Mary, the soul of Jesus was breathed into me, and in metaphorical terms I was impregnated. Then, after a period of no more than ten months, through the revelation recorded towards the end of the fourth part of Barahin Ahmadiyya on page 556, from Mary I was transformed into Jesus and thus I became the son of Mary. However, God did not inform me of this hidden secret at the time of the publication of Barahin Ahmadiyya, even though all the divine revelations in which these hidden secrets were found were sent down to me and were recorded in Barahin. But I was not made aware of their meaning and sequence. As mentioned, I therefore also recorded the traditional doctrine of the Muslims in Barahin Ahmadiyya, that Jesus will descend from heaven physically. And this testifies to my sincere and straightforward nature. My opponents cannot hold me accountable for recording this traditional creed, which was not based on revelation, because I do not claim to know anything of the unseen until it is explained to me by God Almighty Himself. Thus, in that period of my life, God desired in His wisdom that part of the import of the revealed secrets recorded in Barahin Ahmadiyya should remain beyond my understanding. But when the time arrived, these secrets were revealed to me. It was then that I realized that my claim to being the promised Messiah was nothing that had not been referred to me before. Rather, it was the same claim that had been repeatedly and clearly recorded in Barahin Ahmadiyya. Here, I also wish to remark on another revelation. Though I cannot recall whether it has hitherto been published in any of my previous treatises or announcements, nevertheless, I do remember that I disclosed it to hundreds of people. This is recorded in my personal notebook of revelations. It dates back to the time when God first conferred upon me the title of Mariam, and when I received revelation regarding the breathing of the Spirit. After this... I received the following revelation. فَأَجَاءَهَا الْمَخَاذُ إِلَىٰ جِزْءٍ نَخْلَةِ قَالَتْ يَا لَيْتَنِي مِتُّ قَبْلَ هَذَا وَكُنْتُ نَسْيًا مَنْسِيًا That is, 
Then the pain of delivery caused Mary, that is myself, to go towards the trunk of a date palm. In other words, I was confronted with the common masses, the ignorant, and their benighted scholars who did not possess the fruit of belief. They rejected and ridiculed her and unleashed a storm of invective. Then did Mary say, Would that I had died before this and become a thing forgotten. This refers to the clamor first raised by the Muslim clerics on the whole, who found my claim to be intolerable. They exhausted every possible means to destroy me. Thus, in the above revelation, God Almighty has illustrated the pain and suffering that overwhelmed my heart as a result of the hue and cry raised by the ignorant. There are other revelations to this effect. For example, لَقَدْ جِئْتِ شَيْئًا فَرِيًّا مَا كَانَ أَبُوكِ إِمْرَأَ سُوءٍ وَمَا كَانَتْ أُمُّكِ بَغِيًّا Related to this also is the revelation on page 516 of Barahin Ahmadiyya as follows Alaysa Lahu Bikafin Abdahu Walinajalahu Ayatalinas Warahmata Minna Wakana Amram Mahdiyan Kaulal Hakil Ladi Fihi Tamtarun See the twelfth and thirteenth lines of page five hundred and sixteen of Barahin Ahmadiyya. Translation And the people said, O Mary, what a contemptible and despicable act you have committed, far from virtue. Your father and mother were never like this. But God will establish the innocence of his servant from such allegations, and we will make him a sign for the people. This had been decreed since the very beginning, and it was bound to be fulfilled. He is Jesus, son of Mary, but the people doubt it, though this is the truth. Footnote This revelation reminded me of Fazl Shah or Meher Shah, a Sayyid who lived in Batala and loved my father dearly and held a close relationship with him. When he was informed that I had claimed to be the promised Messiah, he wept profusely and said that my father was a decent man. By this he meant that I was nothing like him, for my father was a pious, honest, upright and pure-hearted Muslim. Similarly, many people suggested that by making this claim, I had blemished my family. End footnote. All this is taken from Barahine Ahmadiyya, and these revelations are actually Quranic verses which relate to Jesus and his mother. In these verses, Allah the Exalted says that the very same Jesus who was accused by the people of being an illegitimate child would be made a sign of God. This is the Jesus whom you await. The Jesus and Mary referred to in the above revelations are none other than me. It is I about whom it has been said that God will make him a sign, and I am the Jesus son of Mary whose advent was awaited and about whom they harbor misgivings. However, this is the truth, and I am the one whom you await. Doubts stem merely from ignorance. Those who fail to understand God's hidden secrets and who only see what is in front of them are unable to discern the inner truth. Know well that one of the great objectives of Surah Fatiha is also to teach the prayer إِهْدِنَ الصُّرَاطُ الْمُسْتَقِيمَ صُرَاطُ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ In the prayer of the Gospel, while one is taught to supplicate for their daily bread, 
in the above prayer all the blessings and rewards that were bestowed on the prophets and messengers of the past have been sought from God Almighty. It is worth deliberating over this difference. Nevertheless, just as the prayer of the Messiah was accepted and the Christians have received their daily bread in abundance, similarly, this Quranic prayer was accepted through the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And those who were pious and virtuous from among the Muslims, and the most excellent from among them in particular, were made heirs to the Israelite prophets. In actuality, the birth of the promised Messiah in this very Ummah is also a fruit of the acceptance of this prayer. For although many saints and holy persons partook of similarities between the Israelite prophets under the cloak of secrecy, but by the command and order of God, the promised Messiah of this Ummah was publicly commissioned in the likeness of the Israelite Messiah, so that the resemblance between the Mosaic dispensation and that of Muhammad be understood. It is for this reason that the present Messiah has been made to perfectly resemble the son of Mary, to the extent that this son of Mary has been tried in the same manner as the Israelite one. Firstly, just as Jesus, son of Mary, was born of the very breath of God, this Messiah was also born from within Mary by the breath of God in accordance with the promise of Surah At-Tahrim. Moreover, just as a great uproar was raised at the birth of Jesus, son of Mary, and ignorant opponents said to Mary, لَقَدْ جِئْتِ شَيْئًا فَرِيًّا So too was my case, as a vehement uproar was raised against me. Furthermore, when the Mary of the Israelites gave birth to her son, God responded to the allegations of her opponents with the following proclamation regarding Jesus. وَلِنَّجْعَلَهُ آيَةً لِلنَّاسِ وَرَحْمَةً مِنَّا وَكَانَ أَمْرًا مَقْدِيًّا God Almighty responded to my opponents with the very same answer in Barahin Ahmadiyya at the time of my spiritual birth, which has been decided in metaphor. God made clear to my opponents saying, Your machinations can do him no harm, and I shall make him a sign of mercy for the people. And this was destined by him since the beginning. Similarly, the Jewish scholars issued an edict of disbelief against Jesus, which was prepared by a mischievous Jewish scholar and endorsed by other priests. Even the Jewish scholars and priests of Bethel Maqdus, most of whom were Pharisees and who numbered in the hundreds, put their seals of attestation on this edict of disbelief against Jesus. Footnote Although there were many Jewish sects in the time of Jesus, peace be upon him, there were two which were considered to be true. First, those Sadducees, who adhered to the Torah and collectively sought verdict pertaining to religious matters from it. And secondly, the Pharisees were the other sect, who considered the oral tradition to be an authority over the Torah. The Pharisees were largely spread throughout the Jewish territories and followed numerous oral traditions that mostly contradicted and conflicted with the accounts of the Torah. Their argument was that certain juridical religious matters, such as acts of worship, civil transactions and penal law, were not found in the Torah, but were instead addressed in the oral account of the Talmud, which contained traditions from all the past prophets. For quite some time these traditions were passed on verbally, 
and were only recorded much later. For this reason, numerous fabricated traditions found way into the canon. In that era, since the Jews had split into seventy-three sects, each with its own recorded traditions, scholars of the oral tradition began to pay scant regard to the Torah, and it was the oral tradition that was primarily followed. So much so that the Torah was cast aside and left abandoned. If it happened to coincide with the oral tradition, they accepted it; otherwise, they did not. Thus, it was in such an age that Jesus, peace be upon him, was raised, and the chief audience of his message were the Pharisees, who honoured the oral traditions over the Torah. It had been prophesied in the scriptures of the past prophets that when the Jews would fragment into various sects and follow traditions rather than the Book of God. A judge and arbiter would be given to them, who would be referred to as the Messiah. The Jews would reject him, and ultimately, a great chastisement would fall upon them, and that chastisement was the plague. We seek refuge with Allah. End footnote. This is exactly what happened with me. Then, after this edict had been issued against Jesus, he was greatly harassed. Terrible abuse was held at him, and offensive and defamatory books were published against him. The same happened to me. After eighteen hundred years, it was as if the very same Jesus and the very same Jews had been born again. Alas, this was the meaning of the prophecy "Ghair al-Maghdubi alayhim," which God had explained beforehand. But these people were not content until they became like the Jews and incurred the wrath of God. One of the similarities between Jesus and I was established by the hand of God Himself when He raised me as the Messiah of Islam, precisely at the head of the 14th century, just as He had raised the previous Messiah, son of Mary, at the head of the 14th century. God continues to show many powerful signs in my favor, and there is no one under the canopy of heaven from opposing Muslims, Jews, and Christians, etc. Who possesses the power to match these signs? After all, how can a weak and lowly human contend against God? I am a foundation stone set by God Himself. Whosoever shall try to break this stone will be thwarted. Instead, when it falls on them, they will be crushed. For this stone belongs to God, and it has been laid by the hand of God. And the second stone has been prepared and put forth in contestation by my opponents. In their opposition towards me, they followed in the footsteps of the Jews of the past to the extent that they even sought my end by bringing a murder case against me, of which God forewarned me. This case against me was far graver than the one brought against Jesus, son of Mary, for the case against Jesus was based merely on a theological disagreement. Which, in the eyes of the ruler, was of little importance; rather, it equated to nothing. However, the case crafted against me was one of attempted murder. During the Messiah's trial, Jewish priests testified against him. Therefore, it was but necessary that certain Muslim clerics testified against me also. And so, for this task, God chose Malvi Muhammad Hussein Batalvi. He arrived to provide his testimony, draped in a long cloak, in the same manner that the high priest came to testify in the court against the Messiah, and have him put to the cross. The only difference between the two was that the high priest was given the right of a seat in the court of Pilate, as was the norm for respected Jewish personalities under the Roman government. In fact, some of them were even appointed honorary magistrates.
Therefore the high priest was provided with a seat as per the rules of the court, while the Messiah, son of Mary, was made to stand like a common criminal in court. However, during my trial, the exact opposite occurred. That is to say, contrary to the hopes of my opponents, Captain Douglas, who took the place of Pilate as presiding judge in my case, allowed me to be seated. Hence this Pilate proved himself far more virtuous than the Pilate of the Messiah, son of Mary. For, in issuing his verdict, he courageously and stringently remained committed to the rules of the court, and paid no heed to any external pressure, nor was he prejudiced by religion or ethnicity. He held court so impeccably that if his person was held up as a means of pride for the nation, and as an example for his fellow judges, it would be entirely justified. To pass fair judgment is a difficult task. Unless one breaks off all their ties, they cannot rightly fulfill the duties of this office. But I can honestly testify that this pilot faithfully discharged his duty, whereas the first pilot of Rome was unable to fulfill his duty so faithfully. His cowardice led to great hardships for the Messiah. Thus, this difference ought to always be remembered by our community, for as long as the world exists, and as the community grows into the hundreds of thousands and millions, this noble judge will be fondly remembered. It was his good fortune that God chose him for this task. It must be extremely trying for a judge to confront two parties, one of whom is a missionary for his religion, and the other holds a belief that is at variance with his own, especially when the judge has been informed that the latter holds stark religious differences. But this courageous pilot resiliently took on this test, despite the fact that he was shown passages from my books, which owing to a lack of erudition were interpreted as unduly hostile to Christianity. But, despite this opposing effort, his facial expressions remained impassive, for his enlightened conscience had already arrived at the truth, and because he pure-heartedly sought the truth behind the case. God helped him, and revealed upon his heart the truth, and as a result the reality was disclosed to him. He was gladdened for having been able to find the path of justice. Indeed, it was only due to his fairness that he gave me a seat, just as was given to the plaintiff. But when Maulvi Muhammad Hussain came to provide his testimony against me, in the way that the high priest had testified, he found that I was seated. As such, his eyes did not look upon me in the state of disgrace that he so desired. At this he thought to himself that equal treatment would have to suffice, and so he requested a chair for himself from our pilot. However, he reprimanded him and loudly proclaimed that neither he nor his father had ever been given the right of a chair in any government institution, and that there was no official instruction to provide him a seat. The difference ought to be noted that the earlier pilot, due to his fear of the Jews, offered a chair to some of the revered among them who came as witnesses, whilst keeping the Messiah standing, who had been presented as a criminal, despite the fact that he was sincerely well-intentioned towards him. Rather, he may even be likened to a disciple. In fact, his wife was a particular devotee of the Messiah, and was renowned for her saintliness. But so unnerved was he by his fear that he unjustly handed over this innocent Messiah to the Jews. Unlike myself, he was not even accused of murder, 
only a minor religious dispute existed. However, this pilot of Rome was not strong of heart and was frightened by the threat that he would be reported to Caesar. A further parallel between the Roman pilot and this pilot is worth remembering here. When the Messiah son of Mary was brought before the court, the earlier pilot said to the Jews that he saw no wrong in him. Similarly, when the Messiah of the latter days, that is myself, was presented before the pilot of this age, he asked that he be given a few days to prepare his defense to this charge of murder. But the pilot of this age said, I accuse you not of anything. The verdicts of both pilots were exactly the same. If there is a difference, then only inasmuch that the earlier pilot was unable to stand by his conviction. When Pilate was threatened with being reported to Caesar, he grew apprehensive, and despite knowing the truth, gave the Messiah over to the bloodthirsty Jews, even though he and his wife were both perturbed by this decision, for they were both strong believers of the Messiah. But, when confronted by the fury and outrage of the Jews, cowardice got the better of him. Nevertheless, he did make great attempts in secret to have the Messiah delivered from death on the cross, and he was successful in this effort as well. But only after the Messiah was first hung on the cross and due to immense pain was overcome by a death-like swoon. In any case, ultimately through the efforts of the pilot of Rome, the life of the Messiah, son of Mary, was saved, and for his deliverance the prayer of the Messiah had already been accepted. See Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. Footnote the Messiah himself had also prophesied that the only sign that would be shown would be the sign of Jonah. Thus, the Messiah indicated in this statement that just as Jonah entered into the belly of the whale alive and had escaped alive, so too would he enter the tomb alive and emerge alive. The only way that this sign could have been fulfilled was for the Messiah to have been taken off the cross alive and then taken to his tomb whilst still alive. The Messiah's declaration that no other sign would be shown refutes those who say that one of the signs that the Messiah manifested was that he ascended to the heavens. End footnote. After this, the Messiah secretly left this land and migrated towards Kashmir, and it is here that he passed away. As has previously been mentioned, his tomb is situated in Mohalla Khanyar, Shrinagar. All this was on account of Pilate's efforts, but, nevertheless, the endeavours of this earlier pilot were tainted somewhat by cowardice. After stating that he found no sin in the Messiah, Pilate could have easily released him, for he had the power to do so. However, he was subdued by the threat of being reported to Caesar. In contrast, the pilot of this age stood firm against the uproar of the clergy. This land, too, is ruled by an imperial power, but the empress of today is infinitely better than the Caesar of the past. Therefore, it was not possible for anyone to pressurize the judge into foregoing justice by threatening to report him to the empress. In any case, the Messiah of this age was subject to greater intrigue and uproar than the Messiah of the past. My opponents and the leaders of all communities came together, but the pilot of this age gave preference to the truth and stood by his word to me that he did not find me guilty of murder. Thus he acquitted me in a very straightforward and courageous manner. While the first pilot was forced to employ schemes in order to save the Messiah, this pilot dutifully fulfilled his obligations of court, 
and all without the slightest tinge of cowardice. On the same day that I was acquitted, a thief belonging to the Salvation Army was also brought for trial. This was so because a thief was tried alongside the first Messiah as well. However, the thief apprehended along with the Messiah of the present age was not hung on the cross, nor did he have his bones broken like the first. Rather, he was only given a three-month prison sentence. Let me return to my principal subject and state that Surah Fatiha is so replete with verities, subtleties and insights that if all of them were put to writing, it would be impossible to record them in a single tome. Reflect only over the meaning of the insightful prayer Ihdina Sirat al-Mustaqim, taught in this chapter. This prayer possesses a fully encompassing meaning which is the key to all spiritual and worldly goals. We can never know the true essence of anything, nor derive benefit from it, until we discover a straight path to reach it. The affairs of the world are intricate and complex, whether they relate to the responsibilities associated with kingship and administration, whether they relate to combat or battle and warfare, whether they relate to the subtleties of natural science and astronomy, whether they relate to the method of diagnosis and treatment in the field of medicine, or whether they relate to trade or agriculture. Success in any of these fields is difficult, rather well-nigh impossible to come by, until one finds a clear avenue of approaching the subject at hand. When confronted by difficulty, any intelligent person compels himself to ponder night and day, for hours on end, so as to devise a means by which to resolve the problem at hand. All professions and inventions or any other intricate and complex matter can only be undertaken once the right approach has been adopted. Thus, in order to achieve success in worldly or religious objectives, the most effective prayer is that of seeking the right path. When one approaches anything from the correct avenue, then, with the grace of God, such a person undoubtedly can succeed in attaining their goal. God, in His power and wisdom, has set out a proper way of achieving everything. For example, no ailing person can be efficaciously treated until an effective approach for the identification and diagnosis of their ailment is followed, and the heart is led to believe that the proposed course of action shows promising signs of success. In fact, nothing in the world can be achieved until the correct method is undertaken for that purpose. And so one who strives towards an objective must first discover the correct way of achieving it. Thus, just as one first requires a correct path, so as to attain success in worldly matters, so too, since time immemorial, in order to become a friend of God and to receive His love and grace, a correct path has always been required. Therefore, in the very beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, the chapter that follows Surah Fatiha, God says, Hudan lil which means, the path to attain blessings is the one which we put forth. Footnote In Surah Al-Fatiha, one prays for guidance towards the right path, while in the second chapter, the right path is elaborated as an expression of the acceptance of this prayer. End footnote. Thus, the supplication, Ihdina Sirat al-Mustaqim, is a complete prayer that draws the attention of an individual to the fact that in a time of worldly or spiritual difficulty, the first thing man is obliged to seek out is the straight path 
which leads to the acquisition of one's objective. That is to say, they ought to search for an unclouded and straight path to achieve their goal without hindrance, so that the heart becomes full of certainty and is freed from doubts. However, in accordance with the instruction of the Gospel, one who supplicates for bread would not set out and search for God, for the goal of such a person is to receive bread. When this goal is achieved, what use have they for God? This is the very reason why the Christians have deviated from the right path and have adopted a most shameless belief of taking a mere mortal for God. We cannot understand what the Messiah son of Mary possessed over others by virtue of which the thought arose that he ought to be deified. Most prophets who appeared prior to him were greater as far as miracles were concerned, such as Moses, Elisha, and the prophet Elijah. And I swear by God in whose hand is my life that if the Messiah son of Mary had lived in my age, he could never have done the things which I can do, nor could he have shown greater signs than those which are being manifested by me. And he would have found that God has blessed me more than he. Footnote the reader will soon be able to verify this with the publication of Nuzulul Masih, ten parts of which have already been printed and will soon be distributed. This book has been written in response to Pir Mehrali Shah Golvari's work, Tanbure Chishtiai. In Nuzulul Masih, it has been proven that Pir Sah plagiarized a treatise of the late Muhammad Hassan and committed so many disgraceful mistakes that once they are exposed, his life will turn bitter. As for the unfortunate Muhammad Hassan, he died in accordance with my prophecy recorded in Ijazul Masih. And now, the other unfortunate one, namely Pir Meher Ali Shah, has become another victim of the prophecy Inni Mohinun Man Irada Ehanadaka. Fatabiru Ya Ulil Absar. So take a lesson, O ye who have eyes. End footnote. Now, when I occupy such a status, just think of the rank occupied by the Holy Messenger وسلم, in whose servitude I have come. In matters such as these, there can be no room for jealousy or envy. God does what He wills. One who opposes the will of God is not only thwarted in their endeavours, but after their demise, they are sent to hell. Ruined are those who have taken a mere mortal for God, Ruined are those who have not accepted a divinely chosen prophet. Blessed are those who have recognized me. Of all the ways that lead to God, I am the last, and of all his lights, I am the last. Unfortunate is one who rejects me, for besides me there is nothing but darkness. The second means of guidance given to Muslims is the sunnah, that is, the practical example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him which he demonstrated to elucidate the teachings of the Holy Qur'an. For example, the number of rakat in the five daily prayers are not apparently evident in the Holy Qur'an. How many rakats are to be observed in the morning and how many at other times? However, this has been clarified by the sunnah. One ought not to be deceived into thinking that the sunnah and hadith are one and the same thing. The hadith were collected after some 100 to 150 years, but the Sunnah existed along with the Holy Qur'an since the very beginning. After the Holy Qur'an, 
The greatest favor that has been bestowed on the Muslims is the Sunnah. The obligations of God and His Messenger were two primarily. Firstly, God revealed the Qur'an and through the agency of His Word informed His creation of His will. This was the obligation of God's law. Then, the obligation of the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, was to practically demonstrate the Word of God and thus clearly expound it to the people. In this way, He provided a practical demonstration of this Word and through His Sunnah, i.e. His way of practice, the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, resolved matters of intricacy and difficulty. It would be wrong to suggest that such issues were resolved by the Hadiths, for Islam had already been established on earth before the Hadiths had come into existence. Footnote The Ahli Hadiths refer to both the sayings and actions of the Messenger to be Hadiths. Whatever their terminology, the fact remains that the Sunnah was promoted by the Holy Prophet himself and is entirely separate from the Hadith which were compiled after his lifetime. End footnote. Prior to the compilation of Hadith, did the people not observe prayers, or for that matter pay the zakat, perform the hajj, or possess knowledge of that which was lawful or forbidden? Of course, it is true to say that the third means of guidance are the Hadith, for many matters relating to Islamic history, morality and jurisprudence are elaborated on by the Hadith. Moreover, the greatest benefit of the Hadith is that they serve the Qur'an and Sunnah. Those who fail to properly honour the Qur'an proclaim that the Hadith are an authority over the Qur'an, just as the Jews claimed in relation to their own traditions. But I declare that the Hadith serve the Holy Qur'an and the Sunnah. And it is obvious that servants only add to the grandeur of their master. The Qur'an is the word of God and the Sunnah is the practice of the Messenger of Allah. The Hadiths are an additional testimony in support of the Sunnah. It is wrong to suggest that the Hadiths are an authority over the Qur'an, God forbid. If there is a judge that sits over the Qur'an, it is the Qur'an itself. The Hadiths, which are based somewhat on conjecture, can never sit as a judge over the Qur'an. They only serve as supporting testimony. It is the Qur'an and Sunnah which have provided all the necessary guidance whereas the Hadiths serve only as a supporting testimony. How can the Hadiths be a judge over the Qur'an? The Qur'an and Sunnah were imparting guidance in an age where this man-made adjudicator did not even exist. Do not say that the Hadiths are an authority over the Qur'an, rather consider them a reinforcing testimony to the truth of the Qur'an and Sunnah. Though the Sunnah expounds the purport of the Qur'an, and is the path unto which the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, guided his companions through his practical example, the term does not refer to those sayings that were recorded in books after approximately 100 to 150 years, for these sayings are referred to as hadith. The sunnah is the practical example of those pious Muslims which has been a part of their characters since the very beginning and which thousands of Muslims have been taught to follow. Although a large part of the Hadith is based on conjecture, but so long as they do not contradict the Qur'an or Sunnah, they are worth accepting. For the Hadith not only support the Qur'an and Sunnah, but are also valuable material on various issues that relate to Islam. Therefore, 
to disregard the hadith would be to sever off one of the limbs of Islam. However, if there is a hadith which contradicts the Quran and Sunnah, or contradicts a hadith which accords with the Quran, or if for example there is a hadith which opposes Sahih Bukhari, then such a hadith ought to be rejected. To accept such hadith is to deny not only the Quran, but also all those other hadith that accord with the Quran. I trust that no righteous person could show such audacity so as to accept a hadith which contradicts the Quran, Sunnah, and other hadith which conform with the Quran. Nevertheless, one ought to honor the hadith and derive benefit from them, for they are attributed to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Do not reject them unless the Quran and Sunnah reject them. Rather follow the hadith of the Holy Prophet so diligently that there should be nothing you do or do not do except that you have a basis for it in the hadith. But if a hadith clearly contradicts the accounts given in the Holy Quran, one should reflect so that it may be reconciled. Perhaps the apparent incongruity is the fault of your own understanding. However, if the discrepancy cannot be resolved, then any such hadith ought to be disregarded, for it cannot be from the Messenger, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. On the other hand, if there is a weak hadith, but it conforms to the Qur'an, then accept it, because it stands endorsed by the Qur'an. And if there is a hadith containing a prophecy which is considered inauthentic by experts of hadith, but the prophecy contained in it is fulfilled, either in your lifetime or from before, you ought to accept such a hadith to be true, and consider the scholars and narrators of the hadith, who considered it to be weak and fabricated, as being mistaken or even liars. Hundreds of hadiths which contain prophecies are considered doubtful, fabricated or weak by hadith scholars. If any such hadith happens to come true, and you refuse to accept it on the grounds that it is weak, or one of its narrators lack in piety, you will only establish your own faithlessness for having rejected a hadith which was shown to be truthful by God. Reflect for a moment, if a thousand such hadiths existed, but scholars of hadiths considered them to be weak, yet a thousand prophecies contained in these hadiths were fulfilled, would you declare all these hadiths to be weak, and thus waste a thousand proofs in support of Islam? In this way, you will become enemies of Islam. Allah Almighty says, فَلَا يُذْهِرُوا عَلَىٰ غَيْبِهِ أَحَدًا إِلَّا مَنْ اِرْتَدَىٰ مِنْ رَسُولٍ Thus, True prophecies can only be attributed to truthful messengers. In such instances, is it not closer to piety to suggest that a hadith scholar has mistakenly declared an authentic hadith as weak than to say that God has erroneously authenticated a false one? Even if a hadith is deemed inauthentic, it ought to be followed as long as it does not contradict the Qur'an and Sunnah, and other hadiths which corroborate the Qur'an. But one should take great care when following the hadith, because many of them are fabricated as well, and have created discord within Islam. Every sect possesses narrations which are consistent with their own beliefs, so much so that even an institution as firm and well-established as the Islamic prayer has been given various guises because of conflicting accounts found in the hadith. Some recite Amin loudly, while others recite it silently, some recite Surah Fatiha behind the Imam, while others think that this invalidates the prayer. 
Some fold their arms over their chests, others fold them over their navel. It is actually from the hadith that these differences emanate. Kullu hizbim bima ladayhim farihun. Each party exulting over what they have. Surah Al-Mu'minun, chapter 23, verse 54. Otherwise, the Sunnah only demonstrated one practice, but interpolated accounts cause a variance in practice. In this manner, a false understanding of the Hadith has been the ruin of many, including the Shiites. If they had taken the Qur'an as their final authority, then even Surah Nur, the chapter of light, alone would have sufficed to bestow light upon them. But the Hadiths have become the cause of their ruin. Similarly, in the time of the Messiah, the Pharisee Jews were ruined. Footnote The Gospel very strongly rejected the views espoused by the traditions and narrations of the Talmud. These narrations were directly attributed to Moses by a series of narrators under the assumption that they were his revelations. Eventually, the Torah was issued completely and a study of the traditions alone became prevalent. In certain matters, the Talmud contradicted the Torah, but the Jews would give preference to the Talmud. The Talmud, editor Joseph Barclay, London, 1878. End footnote. For some time they had abandoned the Torah, and as is their belief even today, they held that the oral tradition was a judge over the Torah. As such, they possessed many traditions which stated that their promised Messiah would not come until Elijah physically descended from heaven. Thus, they were gravely misled by these traditions, and because of their dependence on them, were unable to accept the interpretation of the Messiah that John the Baptist had come in the spirit and likeness of Elijah, and as a spiritual reflection of his character. The very reason they stumbled was because of their oral traditions, and ultimately they squandered their faith on account of them. It is also a possibility that they misinterpreted the contents of these traditions, or that these narrations were subject to human interpolation. The Muslims are perhaps not aware of the fact that the Jews who rejected the Messiah were the Ahli Hadith of their time. They raised an uproar against him, issued an edict of disbelief against him, and declared him to be a disbeliever. They further slandered him by saying that he rejected the books of God because God had prophesied the second coming of Elijah. But this man sought to misrepresent the prophecy and applied to it a far-fetched interpretation without any evidence. Footnote When the edict of disbelief was issued against Jesus, peace be upon him, Paul was also from the party that rejected him. Later, however, he promoted himself as an apostle of the Messiah. During the lifetime of the Messiah, this man was a strident opponent. Not one of the Gospels which are attributed to the Messiah prophesies that after him, Paul will repent and become an apostle. There is little need to write about Paul's character before his conversion, for the Christians are well acquainted with it. It is lamentable that for as long as the Messiah remained in his homeland, Paul caused him great grief. Yet after his deliverance from the cross, when the Messiah migrated to Kashmir, the same person entered himself amongst his disciples on the pretext of a fabricated dream and invented the doctrine of Trinity and declared the flesh of swine as being lawful, even though it was strictly forbidden in the Torah 
and also made the consumption of wine a common practice. He entered the concept of Trinity into the doctrine of the Gospels, so that all these innovations would ingratiate the idol worshippers of Greece. End footnote. The Messiah was not only declared a disbeliever, but also a heretic. And it was said that if this man were true, then the whole of the Mosaic religion was false. Such were their dark ages, for the people were misled by false traditions. So, when reading the Hadith, one ought to keep in view the fact that a people of the past, on account of their lending greater authority to the traditions over the Torah, were led to a state where they rejected a true prophet and declared him a heretic and the Antichrist. Sahih Bukhari, however, is a most blessed and valuable collection of hadith for the Muslims. It is the very same compilation which states clearly that Jesus, peace be upon him, has passed away. Likewise, Muslim and other books of hadith are also a treasury of religious knowledge and insight. It is incumbent to follow all such traditions as long as they do not contradict the Quran, Sunnah. All those hadiths which are in accordance with the Quran. You who are in search of God, pay heed to me and listen. There is nothing like certainty. It is certainty which delivers one from sin. It is certainty which gives you the strength to do good deeds. It is certainty which imbues you with the true love of God. Can you cease from sin without certainty? Can you cease pursuing your selfish desires without witnessing a truly certain manifestation of God? Can you discover peace without certainty? Can you bring about a sincere change without certainty? Can you achieve true prosperity without certainty? Is there beneath the heaven any atonement or expiation which can deliver you from sin? Will the so-called atonement of Jesus, son of Mary, grant deliverance from sin? Followers of Christ utter not such falsehood, which brings about utter ruin on earth. Even the salvation of Christ Himself was dependent on certainty. He believed with certainty and was therefore granted salvation. Pity the Christians who deceive others by claiming that they have received salvation through the blood of the Messiah, yet they are themselves immersed in sin from head to toe. They know not who their God truly is, and their life is spent in heedlessness. They are lost in the intoxication of alcohol, but are completely unaware of the holy inebriation which comes from heaven. They are deprived of a life of companionship with God, and of the fruits born of a holy life. Remember, without certainty, you cannot emerge from a life of darkness, nor can you find the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who possess certainty, for it is they who will come to see God. Blessed are those who rid themselves of doubt and uncertainty. For it is they who shall be delivered of sin. Blessed shall you be when the treasure of certainty is bestowed upon you, for only then will your sin be effaced. Sin and certainty cannot coexist. 
Would you ever thrust your hand into a pit wherein you see an extremely venomous snake? Would you remain standing near a volcano which rains down stone, or where lightning strikes, or where a ferocious lion attacks, or where a deadly plague goes on ravaging human life? If you are as certain of God as you are of the snake, lightning, lion, or plague, then it would be impossible for you to disobey God and follow a course that leads to His chastisement. Nor would you sever from him your ties of sincerity and faithfulness. You who have been called to righteousness and piety know that you will be drawn to God, and be cleansed of the vile blemish of sin only when your hearts become replete with certainty. Perhaps some among you may say that you already enjoy certainty, but remember that you only deceive yourselves. You do not possess certainty at all, because you do not possess its essentials. This is because you are still to estrange yourself from sin. Neither do you progress as you ought to, nor do you fear God in the way you ought to. Reflect for yourselves. How can a person who is certain that a serpent lies in a hole plunge their hand therein? Similarly, he who is certain that his food is poisoned will not partake thereof. In the same manner, a person would never carelessly and heedlessly enter a jungle if he observes with certainty that thousands of bloodthirsty lions prowl within. How can your hands and your feet and your ears and your eyes be daring enough to indulge in sin if you truly believe in God? And his reward and punishment. Sin cannot overcome certainty. While you perceive a blazing and consuming fire, you would never thrust yourselves into it. The walls of certainty stretch to heaven; they cannot be scaled by Satan. It is only certainty that has ever purified anyone. Certainty strengthens one against suffering, to the extent that even kings are able to relinquish their thrones and endure the hardships of poverty. Certainty eases every type of distress. It is certainty which enables one to behold God. All atonement is false, and all redemption vain. All purity proceeds from the path of certainty. It is certainty alone that delivers from sin, leads to God, and puts a person ahead of even the angels in sincerity and steadfastness. Any religion that does not provide the means for attaining certainty is false. Any religion that cannot exhibit God through certain means is false. Any religion that has nothing to offer except ancient tales is false. God is as He ever was; His powers are as they always were, and He has the ability to show signs as He always had. Why then are you assuaged with mere tales? A religion whose miracles and prophecies are consigned to mere fables is dead. Ruined is the community upon which God has not descended, and which has not been purified by the hand of God through certainty. 
just as human beings are attracted to those delights for which their inner self yearns, so too, when people experience spiritual pleasures on account of their certainty, they are pulled towards God, and His beauty enchants them to such extent that everything else appears utterly meaningless. Man can only find sanctuary from sin when he comes to know with certainty of his might, punishment and reward. The root cause of all insolence is ignorance. Anyone who partakes of insight that is certain in nature cannot remain insolent. If a homeowner comes to know that a terrible flood is surging towards him, or if his property is encircled by a fire and only a small opening remains, then such a person would never remain there. How then can you claim to possess certainty in the punishment and reward of God, and yet continue to remain in your terrible state? So open your eyes and look upon the law of God that governs the entire world. Do not behave like rats who are attracted to the depths of darkness, rather become soaring pigeons who are drawn to the sky. Do not make a pledge of repentance whilst remaining adamant on sin. Be not like the snake that sheds its skin yet still remains a snake. Be mindful of death, for it lurks nearby though you are unmindful of it. Endeavor to purify yourselves, for only those who purify themselves can reach the pure. But how are you to attain this blessing? God has Himself provided the answer to this, where He states in the Quran, وَاسْتَعِينُوا بِالصَّبْرِ وَالصَّلَاةِ That is, seek the help of God with patience and prayer. What is meant by prayer? It is a supplication that is humbly entreated by extolling His holiness, praise and sanctity, and seeking His forgiveness and by invoking salutations upon the Holy Prophet. So when you observe prayer, do not recite Arabic phrases alone like those who are unmindful. For the prayer and forgiveness sought by such persons is nothing more than a superficial demonstration which is devoid of essence. Their prayers are not sustained by any foundations. When you offer your prayer, besides the verses of the Qur'an which are the word of God, and besides the various prayers taught by the Holy Prophet which are the words of the Messenger, make all your other entreaties in your native tongue, so that the humility and meekness that they are born of may touch your heart. And what are the five daily prayers? They are a reflection of your various conditions. Your life is marked by five variations in state, which overtake you in times of trial, and it is essential that you experience these diverse states. Firstly, when you are warned of an impending tribulation, like the issuance of a warrant in your name by the court, this is the first state which causes a decline in your peace and happiness. This state resembles your hour of decline, for as a result your contentment begins to fade. Symbolic of this is the Zuhr prayer, the timing of which begins when the sun begins to decline from its zenith. 
The second stage which affects you is when the time of the tribulation draws near. This may be likened to when you are apprehended as per the dictates of an arrest warrant and brought, as it were, before a judge. This is when you are overcome by fear and your blood runs cold. The light of hope and solace slowly fades away. This state resembles that part of the day when daylight grows dim and the sun can be looked at directly and it becomes clear that sunset is close at hand. This spiritual state is reflected in the Asr prayer. The third change that overtakes you is when all hope of deliverance from tribulation seems lost. For example, when a charge sheet is prepared against you and your opposing witnesses testify against you in order to see you perish. By this time, you begin to lose control of your senses and you already consider yourself a prisoner. So this state resembles the time when the sun sets and all hope of daylight sets with it. This spiritual state is reflected in the Maghrib prayer. The fourth change that overwhelms you is, as it were, when the tribulation finally seizes you and its deep darkness engulfs you. For example, when you are sentenced by the judge on the basis of the charge sheet and the testimony of the witnesses and you are handed over to a police officer to remain in custody. This state resembles that part of the day when night finally settles and complete darkness prevails. So, this spiritual state is reflected in the Isha prayer. Then, after you have spent a period in time engulfed by the darkness of this affliction, God's mercy finally surges forth upon you and saves you from darkness. This may be likened to when day dawns after the dark of the night, and then this very light of day shines forth with all its radiance. So this spiritual state is reflected in the Fajr prayer. Thus, in view of the five states that are prevalent in the variation of your disposition, God has prescribed for you the five daily prayers. By this you can appreciate that the daily prayers are specifically for the benefit of your soul. If you desire to be safeguarded from afflictions, then do not abandon the five daily prayers for they are a reflection of your varying inner and spiritual conditions. Prayer is the cure for all future tribulations. You know not what divine decree the new day will usher in for you. So before the new day dawns, humble yourself before your Lord, so that the new day brings for you goodness and blessing. O you the affluent, and O kings, O you who are wealthy, there are but few among you who fear God and are pious in the ways prescribed by Him. Most of you are devoted to the possessions and territories of this world and spend your entire lives occupied to this end and give not thought to your death. All those wealthy persons who do not observe their prayers and are unmindful of God carry the sins of all their servants and attendants around their necks. All those wealthy persons who consume alcohol also carry the sins of the people who intoxicate themselves under their influence. 
you who claim to possess understanding, know that this world is not eternal. So take hold of yourselves. Eschew all immoderation and abstain from every type of intoxicant. It is not alcohol alone that ruins a person. Opium, ganja, juras, bhang, dari, and all other addictions are similarly destructive. They ruin the mind and destroy lives. So shun all such substances. I cannot understand why one would choose to indulge in these intoxicants when year on year they claim the lives of thousands of addicts, not to mention the torment of the hereafter. Footnote. The degree to which alcohol has harmed the people of Europe is because Jesus, peace be upon him, himself used to drink, perhaps on account of a malady or out of previous habit. But, O ye Muslims, your prophet, peace be upon him, was pure and free from every kind of intoxicant. Indeed, he was truly free from all sin. So, as Muslims, who do you follow? Unlike the Gospel, the Qur'an does not permit alcohol. On the basis of which scripture do you then deem alcohol to be lawful? Why are you so heedless of death? End footnote. Become righteous so that you may live long and receive the blessings of God. He who remains engrossed in extreme luxury lives an accursed life. He who shows discourtesy or inconsideration lives an accursed life. He who neglects God and is unsympathetic towards his servants lives an accursed life. A rich person will be held accountable for their duties towards God and their fellow human beings, in the same way as will one of meagre means, nay, even more stringently. How unfortunate is one who places their trust in this short span of life and completely turns away from God and makes use of those things prohibited by God with such impudence as if they were lawful for them. In the likeness of one who is mad, when angered, such a person is prepared to curse, injure, or even kill. In the heat of their lustful passions, they are driven to the extremes of shamelessness. Such a person shall never attain true happiness until death seizes them. My dear ones, you have only come to this world for a short while, much of which has already passed. Thus, do not displease your Lord. An earthly government of great might can annihilate you if you displease them. Reflect, how then is it possible for you to escape the wrath of God Almighty? If you are righteous in the eyes of God, none can destroy you, for your Lord himself shall protect you. The enemy who thirsts for your life will never be able to prevail over you. If not for this protection, no one can guard your life, and you will spend your life in fear of your enemies, and be made anxious by all types of affliction. And ultimately, your final days will be consumed by grief and anger. God becomes the refuge of those who attach themselves to Him. Therefore hasten towards Him and forego all forms of opposition to Him. 
Do not be indolent in fulfilling your obligations towards him and do not wrong his servants through your words or deeds. Footnote A person who unleashes their wrath upon mankind is eventually ruined in a similar manner. That is why in Surah Fatiha, God has named the Jews as Maghdubi alayhim, those who have incurred the wrath of God. This implies that though all wrongdoers would incur the wrath of God on the day of resurrection, those who unjustly vent their rage in this world suffer by divine wrath in the present life as well. The world has not witnessed the wrath of the Christians in the same way as from the Jews. This is why in Surah Fatiha they are referred to as Dalin, the misguided. The word Dalin has two meanings. In the first instance, it means that they have gone astray, and in the second, it means they will be completely lost in something. I believe this is a glad tiding for the Christians, as it foretells that a time will come when they will be delivered from a false religion and lose themselves in Islam. Over time, they will eschew their idolatrous beliefs, they will abandon their false and disgraceful practices and become monotheists like the Muslims. Thus, the second meaning of the word Adalin, which appears at the end of Surah Fatiha, means to be completely lost or immersed in something. This is a prophecy regarding the religious state of the Christians in the future. End footnote. Remain forever fearful of the anger and wrath of heaven, for this is the only path to salvation. O learned ones of Islam, do not hasten to reject me, for there are many secrets which are not so easily understood. Do not reject what I have to say at the very first instance, for this is not the way of righteousness. If you had not been wrong about certain matters or mistaken in your interpretations of certain hadith, the very advent of the promised Messiah, who is the arbitrator, would have been useless. A precedent has already been set, for the Jews of the past emphasized and argued the same thing that you now propose. Just as you await the second coming of Jesus, peace be upon him, they too awaited the second coming of the prophet Elijah. They averred that the Messiah was to come only after the prophet Elijah, who was lifted into heaven, would physically descend, and that whosoever claimed to be the Messiah prior to the coming of the prophet Elijah was a liar. They based this belief not only on their hadith, but further quoted divine scripture, the book of Malachi, to support their claims. But, when Jesus, peace be upon him, claimed to be the Messiah, who was promised to the Jews, and Elijah did not descend, despite this apparent precondition, all these doctrines of the Jews were proven false. The belief of the Jews that the prophet Elijah would physically come down from heaven was ultimately understood to imply that someone else in his spirit and character would appear. Indeed, this was the interpretation put forth by Jesus himself, whom you now seek to bring down from heaven. Thus, why do you stumble at such a place where the Jews have already lost footing? Thousands of Jews reside in your country. Ask them, is their belief not exactly the same as your current belief? 
So why would the God who did not cause the prophet Elijah to descend for the sake of Jesus, and he put forth interpretations to the Jews, cause him to descend for your sake? You reject the verdict of the very person whom you drag from heaven. If you are in doubt, then ask any one of the many hundreds of thousands of Christians in this country, or refer to the gospel. Did Jesus not himself aver that John the Baptist was actually the second coming of Elijah, thus dashing the hopes of the Jews? If it is necessary in this age that the prophet Jesus must descend from heaven, then in such a case Jesus cannot be considered a true prophet. For if it were the established practice of Allah to send back prophets from heaven, why did Elijah not return? And why was John declared to be Elijah on the grounds of interpretation? Those who are possessed of understanding ought to reflect on this. Further, your doctrines that the Messiah, son of Mary, will descend from heaven, join forces with the Mahdi and wage war with the people in order to coerce them into becoming Muslims, are such as defame the religion of Islam. Where in the Holy Quran is the use of compulsion in religious matters permitted? Rather, Allah the Exalted says in the Holy Quran, "La ikraha fiddin." This means that there is no compulsion in religion. How then can the Messiah, son of Mary, be granted liberty to coerce people to such an extent that he would force them to either accept Islam or face death without even accepting the jizya? In which place? Part or chapter of the Holy Quran is such a teaching sanctioned. Footnote: To suggest that it was lawful to convert the Arabs to Islam by force is a notion that is categorically rejected by the Holy Quran. However, what is established is that the whole of Arabia caused immense pain to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, slayed many of his companions, both men and women. And expelled from their homeland the rest who were victims of persecution. Therefore, all those who were guilty of murder or aided in this crime had become worthy of being slain in the eyes of God Almighty, due to the bloodshed they had caused. In retribution, although they actually deserved to be slain, God, who is the most merciful of all, showed clemency. By stating that their earlier crime, which made them worthy of punishment by death, would be forgiven to those of them who entered Islam, where lies the allegation of compulsion in the presence of such mercy? End footnote. The entire Quran repeatedly states that there is no compulsion in religion, and evidently demonstrates that the battles which took place in the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Were not to propagate religion by force; instead, they were in the nature of retribution. That is to say, they served as a penalty against those who had murdered a large party of Muslims, and who had forced others from their homes and committed immensely grave injustices against them. Allah the Exalted states: "Udina lilladina yuqataluna bi annahum dhulimu, wa inna Allaha ala nasrihim laqadir." That is, permission to fight is given to those Muslims who are being subjected to war by the disbelievers, because they have been wronged, and God has the power to help them. Then there were defensive wars, which were fought to preserve freedom of choice 
or to establish liberty in the land against those who aggressed to destroy Islam or forcefully suppress its propagation. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and his blessed caliphs never waged war except in these three cases. In fact, the Muslims tolerated the injustices of other people to such a degree that no similar example can be found among other nations. So what right would Jesus the Messiah and the Mahdi have to come and begin murdering people? Will they not even accept jizya from the people of the book? As a result, they will abrogate the verse, Hatta yu'atul jizyata ayyadin wa hum sagirun. What sort of defenders of Islam will they be if upon their arrival they begin to abrogate verses of the Qur'an which were valid in the lifetime of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him? And yet would such a revolution cast no blemish on Khatm al-Nabu'at, seal of prophethood? Today, after 1300 years have passed since the era of the Holy Prophet, Islam has been internally divided into 73 sects. The duty of the true Messiah should be to win the hearts through argumentation, not by the sword, and break the creed of the cross through irrefutable and powerful arguments, rather than going about breaking crosses made of gold, silver, brass and wood. Your use of force only serves to show that you possess no argument whatsoever to support your own view. Footnote Certain ignorant persons, such as the editor of Al-Manar, level the allegation that I have only declared jihad to be unlawful, as I live under the rule of the British. What these foolish people fail to realize is that if it had been my desire to falsely please the government, why would I have stated time and again that Jesus son of Mary survived the crucifixion and died a natural death in Shrinagar, Kashmir? and that neither was he God nor the Son of God. Would those from among the British who are passionate about their faith not turn away from me? You who are unenlightened, heed what I say. I have never sought to gratify the government. The fact of the matter is that the Holy Qur'an forbids religious war against such a government which freely allows Muslims to engage in religious practices and traditions, and does not take up the sword against us to propagate their religion. After all, the government does not wage a religious war against us. It is incumbent that I express my gratitude to them, for I could not have done my work in Mecca and Medina as freely as I have done in this land. The wisdom of God chose that I be born in this land. Then, am I to belittle the wisdom of God? The Holy Qur'an says, in this verse, Allah the Exalted explains that He saved Jesus the Messiah from crucifixion and settled Him and His mother on an elevated land, which was a place of comfort with streams of running water, that is, in Srinagar, Kashmir. Similarly, God has also settled me in the elevated land of this government, where those who seek to make mischief are unable to harm me. This is an abode of peace. It is a country where streams of true knowledge flow forth and there is peace and security against the onslaughts of those who seek mischief. Thus, am I not to be thankful for the generosity of this government? End footnote. 
Whenever an ignorant and cruel person is defeated in argumentation, they always extend their hand to seek a sword or rifle. However, a religion that can only spread its message with the help of the sword and by no other means can never even remotely be from God Almighty. If you do not refrain from such a jihad and the view presented above enrages you to such extent that you should name the righteous as antichrist and heretic, we end our discussion on two phrases. قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ لَا أَعْبُدُوا مَا تَعْبُدُونَ Say, O ye disbelievers, I worship not that which you worship. Surah Al-Kafirun, chapter 109, verses 2 and 3. In this era of internal divide and disunity, how many people will your imaginary Messiah and Mahdi wield the sword against? Do the Sunnis not consider the Shiites worthy of being put to the sword? And do the Shiites not deem the Sunnis worthy of being utterly annihilated by the sword? Thus, when according to common belief each sect considers the other to be liable for punishment, upon how many battlefronts will each sect fight a jihad? But remember, God needs no sword. He will cause His religion to flourish on earth through heavenly signs, and none shall be able to stop Him. And remember that Jesus shall never descend again. The confession he shall make on the day of judgment, as mentioned in the verse, clearly shows that he will not reappear in the world. On the day of judgment he will plead ignorance of the decline of the Christians. If he had returned to the world before the day of judgment, would he respond to God by saying that he knew nothing of the decline of the Christians? Hence, this verse demonstrates that he has clearly admitted to not returning to the world again. If he was to come back to the earth before the day of judgment, and if he was to dwell therein for forty years, he would be uttering a lie before God Almighty by declaring that he knew nothing of the state of the Christians. What he ought to have said was that at the time of his second advent, he witnessed almost 400 million Christians in the world, and that he was well aware of their having gone astray, and that he was worthy of reward for converting all the Christians to Islam and for breaking their crosses. What an utter lie it would be for Jesus to say that he had no knowledge of this matter. In short, this verse clearly records a declaration of the Messiah which establishes that he will never return to the world. The truth is that the Messiah has passed away and his grave is situated in Mohalla Khanyar, Srinagar. Footnote Southern Italy's most popular newspaper, the Corriere della Sera, recently published a strange story. On 13th of July 1879, the elderly recluse named Kor died in Jerusalem. During his lifetime, he was renowned to be a saintly man. He left behind an inheritance. The governor sought out his relatives and handed over to them an amount of 200,000 francs, 118,750 rupees, which was in the form of coins from different countries. They were discovered from the cave in which the recluse had lived for quite some time. Along with this money, his relatives were also handed some documents which they were unable to read. 
a few scholars of Hebrew happened to view these documents and were surprised to find that these documents were in ancient Hebrew. Upon reading them, the following inscription was found. I, Peter the fisherman, a servant of Christ the son of Mary, addresses the people in the name of God Almighty and in accordance with his will. The letter ended with the words, I, Peter the fisherman, in the name of Christ and in my ninetieth year, resolved to write these loving words, three Passovers, three years, after the death of my Lord and Master, Christ the Messiah, the Son of Mary, in Bola, near the sacred house of God. Scholars have concluded that the script dates from the time of Peter. The London Bible Society also support this opinion, and after an in-depth examination of these documents, have decided to purchase them from the owners for the value of 400,000 lire, 237,500 rupees. The prayer of Christ, son of Mary, may peace be on both of them. He said, My Lord, I am unable to overcome that which I consider to be wrong, nor have I attained the virtue I desired to attain. Others keep their reward in hand, but I do not. My greatness lies in my work. No one is in a worse estate than I. My Lord, who is most high, forgive me my sins. O God, do not let it be that my enemies are able to find fault in me, nor let me be humiliated in the estimation of my friends. Let not my piety put me to trial, and do not let this world become my greatest source of happiness or the chief object of my life. Do not place me at the mercy of such a one who would show me no compassion. O God, who is the most gracious, in the name of your mercy, ordain it so. You do indeed shower your mercy on those who are in need of it. Footnote on page 69 of the first edition of the Urdu book. End footnote. Footnote. A Jew has also verified that the tomb in Shirinagar is constructed on the pattern of the tombs of the Israelite prophets. The relevant note can be read in Appendix A. End footnote. Now God himself shall descend and fight with those who war against the truth. God fights by manifesting his signs, and there is nothing objectionable in this. However, it is definitely unacceptable for human beings to fight because they do so as an expression of physical force. Pity these Muslim clerics, for if they were possessed of integrity, they could have found full satisfaction by turning towards piety. And God has surely comforted those souls which are pure. But those who were created from the same dust as Abu Jahl follow in his footsteps. A Muslim cleric from Mirut has sent me a notification through registered post that the Nadwatul Ulama are holding a conference in Amritsar. He suggested that a debate ought to be held there. However, let it be clear that if my opponents had been well-intentioned and if they were not consumed by thoughts of victory and defeat, why would they have required Nadwa and the like to put their minds at ease? The religious scholars of Nadwa are, in my view, no different from those of Amritsar. They hold the same doctrines, the same character, and the same disposition. Everyone is at full liberty to come to Gardian. 
not for a debate, but to hear what I have to say in order to seek the truth. If afterwards they still harbour doubt, they may seek to dispel it with humility and respect. Such people shall be considered as guests for as long as they remain in Qadiyan. I have no need to refer to the Nadva, nor can they help. They are all enemies of the truth, yet the truth continues to spread in the world. Is it not a magnificent miracle of God Almighty that twenty years before today, by way of revelation, He made evident in Barahine Ahmadiyya that people would strive vigorously and exert their utmost efforts to bring about my failure, but ultimately God would grant me a large community? This divine revelation dates back to a time when I did not have a single follower. Then, when my claim was published, my opponents spared no effort in their attempts against me. Ultimately, however, in accordance with the above-mentioned prophecy, my community spread. And in British India to date, my community numbers more than a hundred thousand people. If the Nadwatul Ulama are cognizant of death, they ought to consult Barahine Ahmadiyya and the relevant official documents and testify whether or not this is a miracle. Now, when both the Qur'an and divine miracles have been presented to them, what purpose is served by debate? In this country, the custodians of shrines and the descendants of saints are so estranged from religion and so deeply engrossed in their self-invented beliefs that they are entirely oblivious of the trials and tribulations that afflict Islam. Instead of the Holy Qur'an and books of Hadith, their gatherings are enlivened by all sorts of tambourines, violins, drums and gawali singers etc. which are innovations in the faith. Yet despite this, they boast of themselves as being guides of the Muslims and followers of the Holy Prophet. Some of them even dress up as women, decorate their hands with henna and wear bangles. They prefer to recite poetic couplets in their congregations instead of the Holy Qur'an. These customs are now so deeply entrenched, they may be likened to rust, which one could hardly expect to be removed. But God Almighty will surely manifest His powers and come to the aid of Islam. An Admonition for Women in the present era, certain women have also become involved in somewhat peculiar innovations in the faith. They deeply frown on the Islamic teaching of multiple marriages, as if they no longer consider it a part of faith. They are unaware that the law of God contains every remedy. If the injunction of multiple marriages did not exist in Islam, such cases which compel men to enter a second marriage would remain unaddressed by the Sharia. Suppose a woman becomes insane or leprous or falls victim to any other disease which forever renders her disabled, or if such a circumstance arises where although she is deserving of compassion, she loses her capacities. As the husband is also worthy of compassion since he is unable to live a life of celibacy, it would be cruel in such a case to the faculties of a man to prohibit him from entering into a second marriage. In actuality, it is in view of these factors that the divine law of God has left this door open for men. 
Similarly, in pressing circumstances, God has also opened an avenue for women. If a husband becomes incapacitated, a woman may ask a judge to allow her a khula, which is also a form of divorce. The divine law of God can be likened to a pharmacy. If the pharmacy is unable to dispense medicine for every kind of ailment, then it will not operate for long. So, contemplate. Is it not true that men are at times confronted with circumstances that compel them towards a second marriage? What use is a divine law that does not contain a solution for all situations? According to the Gospel, the only ground for divorce is adultery and the hundreds of other factors that might create severe hostility between a man and woman are ignored. Ultimately, this shortcoming has proved unsustainable for the Christian people, and now, in the United States, it has become necessary that a law pertaining to divorce be enacted. So reflect, where does this law now leave the gospel? O women, do not despair. The book that you have been given does not require man-made amendments like the gospel. It safeguards the rights of men just as it safeguards the rights of women. If a woman is displeased by her husband's multiple marriages, she is at liberty to seek a divorce through the authorities. If the divine law of God was ever to be considered complete, it was imperative that God furnished therein provision for all the diverse circumstances that were to confront the Muslims. O ye women! Do not criticize God Almighty when your husbands intend to enter a second marriage. Rather, pray that you are protected from trials and tribulations. Undoubtedly, a husband who marries two wives and does not treat them equitably is most cruel and shall be held accountable. But you on your part must not disobey God and thereby invite His wrath upon yourselves. Everyone is answerable for their deeds. If you become pious in the sight of God Almighty, your husband will be made pious also. Although religious law permits multiple marriages for men, in view of various exigencies, there also exists for you the law of divine decree. If the law established by the Sharia should test your resolve, then turn towards the law of divine decree through prayer. For the law of divine decree overpowers even the law of Sharia. Become righteous and do not entirely attach your heart to this world and its attractions. Forgo your national pride and do not ridicule or mock another woman. Do not demand such things of your husbands as are beyond their capacity. Seek to enter your grave in a state that you are pure and chaste. Do not show laxity in fulfilling the obligations of God, such as the prayer and zakat, etc. Be faithful to your husbands with heart and soul, for much of their honor rests in your hands. So fulfill this duty with such excellence that God counts you among the virtuous and obedient. Do not be extravagant and do not be wasteful with your husband's wealth. Do not be dishonest. Do not steal, do not incessantly complain and do not slander other men and women. Conclusion All the counsel I have written is intended to increase my community in the fear of God Almighty. 
and so that they become worthy of being saved from his wrath, which is currently ablaze on earth, and so that they may be saved from the plague which is prevalent in these days. It is true piety which pleases God. Alas, how rare is true piety! God safeguards a truly righteous person from affliction in no ordinary way but in the manner of a sign. Many deceitful and ignorant persons claim to be pious, but truly pious are those whose virtue is established by a sign from God. Anyone can claim to love God, but only those love Him whose devotion is testified to by heaven. Everyone claims that their religion is true, but only the religion of such a one is true who has bestowed heavenly light in this very life. Everyone claims that they will attain salvation, but only such a person is true in their word who sees the heavenly light of salvation in this very world. Strive therefore to become the beloved of God so that you may be saved from every affliction. A truly righteous person will be protected from the plague, for they have found sanctuary with God. So become truly righteous. You know well what God has said regarding the plague. It is the fire of divine wrath. Save yourself from this fire. A person who sincerely follows me and is not unfaithful, indolent, unmindful, and torn between virtue and sin, shall be saved. But others who tread indolently on this path, and do not wholeheartedly advance in piety, or who prostrate before the world, put themselves to trial. Show complete obedience to God in all respects. The time has now come for all those who consider themselves members of my community to sacrifice their wealth for the sake of this community as well. A person who can afford even a penny ought to donate that penny towards the expenditure of the community on a monthly basis. Those who can afford to give a rupee per month should donate a rupee every month. The costs of hospitality aside, religious projects also require substantial funds. Hundreds of guests come to visit, but comfortable guest houses have not been built until now due to a lack of funds, though this is necessary. Sufficient bedding is not available either. The mosque requires an extension. Our print and publishing efforts lag behind our opponents. For every 50,000 magazines and religious journals published by the Christians each month, we are barely able to consistently produce a thousand. Thus, every member of the community ought to aid such projects according to their means, so that God Almighty extends to them His help as well. It is better to consistently contribute every month, even if only a small amount, than to donate after long intervals according to one's whim. Every person's sincerity is determined by their service. Dear ones, the time has come to serve religion and assist its cause. Prize this opportunity, it shall not come again. Those upon whom Zagat is liable should send their contributions here, you should all guard yourselves against frivolities and spend your wealth in this cause. 
Be loyal in all circumstances, so that you may be blessed with favor and the Holy Spirit. For this reward has been prepared for those who have entered this community. The greatest manifestation of the Holy Spirit was shown to our Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. At times, the Holy Spirit appeared to certain prophets in the form of a dove, or in the form of a cow to other prophets and avatars, or in various other semblances to others. The Holy Spirit did not manifest itself in the guise of a human being until the advent of the perfect man. That is to say, our Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. When, however, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, appeared, since he was the perfect man, the Holy Spirit also manifested itself upon him in the form of a human being. As this powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit encompassed the entire breadth of heaven and earth. And for this reason, the teaching of the Holy Quran remained safeguarded against polytheism. Conversely, the Holy Spirit manifested itself to the founder of Christianity in an exceedingly frail form, that is, a dove. Therefore, the unholy spirit, namely Satan, attained ascendancy over the religion. He exhibited his power and might in the likeness of an enormous serpent and assailed Christianity. This is the reason that the Holy Qur'an has referred to the misguidance of Christianity as being the most terrible on earth. It states that the deification of a human as God and to attribute a son to God is such a grave sin on earth that it could well rend heaven and earth asunder and shatter it into pieces. So, Christianity has been mentioned and refuted in the very beginning of the Qur'an and is understood from the verse إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُ and وَلَدَّالِّينَ and then again at its close as is evident from the following قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ اللَّهُ السَّمَدٌ لَمْ يَلِدٌ وَلَمْ يُولَدٌ that say he is Allah the One Allah the Independent and Besought of All He begets not nor is He begotten Surah Al-Ikhlas chapter 112 Verses 2 to 4. The middle part of the Quran also mentions the evil of the Christian faith, as is apparent from the verse, That the heavens might well nigh burst thereat. Surah Maryam, chapter 19, verse 91. Thus, according to the Quran, since the creation of the world, Creature worship and falsehood have never been so rampant as in this age. This is why the Christians alone were called for a prayer duel and no other polytheists. It is not difficult to understand why the Holy Spirit appeared in earlier times in the guise of birds and other animals. I do point out, however, that this was an indication of the fact that the nature of our Prophet wasallam, was so excellent that he, as it were, compelled the Holy Spirit to appear before him in the form of a human being. Why do you lose heart when you follow such a magnificent prophet? Display such conduct that even the angels in heaven are left astonished at your loyalty and purity and invoke blessings upon you. Submit to death that you might be granted life. 
cleanse your inner selves of selfish passions so that God may settle in you. Completely sever your earthly ties on the one hand and establish a perfect heavenly relationship on the other. May God help you. I now conclude and pray that my teachings prove beneficial for you. May such a transformation take place within you that you become the stars of the earth and that the earth is illumined by the light you have been granted by your Lord. Amin. And again, Amin. Ya ibadallahi, udhakkirukum ayyam allahi wa udhakkirukum taqwa al-qulub. Innahu man ya'ti rabbahu mujriman فَإِنَّ لَهُ جَهَنَّمَ لَا يَمُوتُ فِيهَا وَلَا يَحْيَا فَلَا تُخْلِدُوا إِلَى زِينَةِ الدُّنْيَا وَزُورِهَا وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهِ وَاسْتَعِينُوا بِالصَّبْرِ وَالصَّلَاةِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَمَلَائِكَتَهُ يُصَلُّونَ عَلَى النَّبِيِّ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا صَلُّوا عَلَيْهِ وَسَلِّمُوا تَسْلِيمًا اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد وبارك وسلم O servants of Allah, I remind you of the coming of his days and admonish you to adopt righteousness of heart. Verily, he who comes to his Lord a sinner, for him is hell. He shall neither die therein nor live. Surah Taha, chapter 20, verse 75 do not be ensnared by the beauty and adornment of this world. And seek help with patience and prayer. Surah Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 46. Allah and His angels send blessings on the Prophet. O ye who believe, you also should invoke blessings on him and salute him with the salutation of peace. Surah Al-Ahzab, chapter 33, verse 57. We invoke your grace and blessings on Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and his ummah. Prophecy about the plague in verse. Although it is not within the power of anyone to show a sign, but I show you a sign from God. Such a fortunate one shall be delivered from the plague, who fears God and seeks refuge in the four walls of my home. I swear by God and by His Majesty. All my words flow from divine revelation. So what is there to quarrel with now? This should suffice. For anyone whose heart has fallen dark due to rejecting me. If the promise that I have made proves false, it is only right that everyone stands up to fight against me. A request for donations for an extension of the house. In anticipation of the likely dissemination of the plague throughout the country, it has been noted that there is a dire shortage of space in my home, part of which is occupied by male guests and another part by female guests. As you are aware, Allah exalted be His glory has promised to especially safeguard all those who dwell within its four walls. My partners in the inheritance of the late Ghulam Heather's home have agreed to give over to me my stake and sell to me its remaining portion as well. In my view, this house, which can become an extension to my home, can be prepared within a cost of 2,000. 
since there is a danger that the time of this plague is near, and in accordance with the glad tiding of divine revelation, this home will serve as an ark in the storm of this plague, no one knows how many persons might benefit from the promise of this glad tiding. Therefore, this work is of immediate nature. We ought to trust in God who is the Creator, the Provider, and the One who sees our good deeds, and make every effort in His cause. Although this home of mine is like an ark, it can no longer accommodate any further men or women. Therefore, an extension is necessary. Wassalam ala al-huda. Peace be on those who follow guidance. Announced by Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian. This was an audiobook of Noah's Ark by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed the Promised Messiah and Mahdi, recorded for the Review of Religions. You can find a range of audiobooks and other exciting resources on our website at www.reviewofreligions.org.